on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately, rightfully dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you're a first-time listener for the next hour. We'll be taking people's questions. All you need to do is pick up the phone, and if you have an issue as you study God's Word or you'd like biblical counsel as it relates to your ministry and your local assembly or uh, you're facing an issue in your life and you'd like to know what God says, give us a call. Again, the number is Rick just gave is 525-1859. That's area code 843. We have people who live stream with us around the world and questions come in from many, many different places. And you can email us here directly uh, into the studio. And the email address for that is TBL. It stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, let's go ahead and get started. All right, Pastor. Indeed, we've got a, a question from a deployed Marine. Uh, he writes, uh, Dr. Brogy, um, and actually, hold on a second. I need to make sure we don't have a uh, live caller standing by here. Uh, let's go there one second. Um, as you said, uh, of course, our phone numbers are 843-525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980. Uh, or you can go ahead and email us at tbl at net. Okay, we were running a little bit behind there, and I had to... Uh, open up a window here, so I think we've got our communications um, going now with our volunteer. In the Let's go ahead there. and read the deployed Marine. If we've got a live caller, we'll just put them on hold. Go ahead. Okay, very good. Um, anyway, the uh, deployed Marine did say that um, actually we do have a live caller, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, before I, before I go to my, my question and my point, I just want to thank you and the church for—this will be my wife and I, our third year helping out with the youth choir. We're working with Pastor Matt with the King's Choir again, and I just want to say what a privilege it is and an honor to try to mentor these young children and, and share the gospel with them and teach them all about Jesus and, and the Bible, and it just, it's just a wonderful thing, and I thank you for that. And uh, my question is, I, I just started a study in First Corinthians— and uh, quite an amazing book. And what, what should I be looking for, Pastor Brogy? What should I take from this particular book? Well, it's a, it's a book that reminds us that there are certainly no perfect churches in the world. And uh, I tell people, look, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it because you'll destroy it. Uh, none of us are perfect. And this is a church that Paul planted. You can read of it on his missionary journeys and his encounter with these people. He was the first to bring the gospel. They received Christ. The challenge with this church is they had not grown 
and matured spiritually as he had expected. And so uh, he he wrote in the second chapter, um, he says, a natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because biblical truth is spiritually appraised. But then he reminds them, but we have the mind of Christ. But then he tells them, but here's your problem. Our brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not yet able to receive it. And so he's describing his encounter with them as new believers. It's all in the past tense. That's how you deal with a new believer, not as one who's spiritually mature, but as to a baby in Christ. And so he didn't give them the deep, heavy meat truths of the word of God, but the milk truths. The problem was, is that he says in the middle of verse two of chapter three, indeed, even now you're not able, you're fleshly. There's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? And so in many ways, they mimicked unbelievers by their division. So it's a church that's divided and they're divided over a number of different issues. Some of it is just sin that is left unchecked in the life. There's lawsuits. There's a man who's sleeping with his stepmother and Paul hits him head on. When you come to seven, one, you turn a key in the book um, and that, uh, it's a, div- a division, a natural division in the book now concerning the things about which you wrote. And so they wrote him and asked him a number of questions. In beginning in seven one through the end of the book, he uh, addresses question after question after question. So again, it's a, it's a great book as every book that God gave us is. It's a wonderful book too in that people have not changed in 2,000 years. The problems that the Corinthians have are problems that we still have today. Problems of jealousy, problem of strife, problems of church discipline, problems of wayward believers who have fallen into sexual immorality, problems of Christians who get drunk, uh, problems with the misuse of spiritual gifts. And in God recording the problems of this church, we have forever emblazoned in the word of God the way in which to address these problems. So it'd make for for good, good study. Appreciate that question. Appreciate um the comment on the children's choirs, children's choirs are important in a local assembly if they're able to offer them. And by God's grace, we are because music is a powerful medium, but the principle applies to anyone listening. If you have children or grandchildren to instill in them great music, um, we give our kids uh, growing up, you know, good music tapes that they could listen to. We'd play them in the car, play them in the home. Uh, We continue to, play a number of them that they learned with our grandkids now. In fact, a lot of our kids have said, hey, dad, mom, you know, can can you get us a copy of uh, that kid's praise tape that we used to listen to? And, uh, and we'll provide that for them. Why? Because there's something about music that is a powerful medium that changes the life for good or for evil. And so David uh, played godly music and it drove away the demonic realm. And two, there's a way in which to memorize things through music that is different. And so, you know, you might struggle memorizing a verse, but you can, you can spout out uh, some country music song. 
So, you know, why not memorize godly music and instill biblical truth? And that's what we do with our kids' choirs. They, they learn godly music. Sometimes they're actually singing scripture. But as they learn hymns and different things, we go through the meaning of the hymns and the meanings of the words, and we teach biblical theology, and it's a wonderful thing. And if you are new and you don't have a place to bring your kids like that, Wednesday night, 630, ages 4, all the way through the 6th grade. Let's go to the next question and caller. All right. We do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks. Um, I have a question. We were in a discussion concerning sins of the Father. Um, I know it David's children suffered and after his children, after his sins, because they suffered under the sword. But then earlier in their Old Testament, it speaks of um, each person is responsible for his own sins, sons and fathers. What does the Bible say is clear about sins of the father? And I'll, I'll take your answer off the call. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, my mind immediately flies to the Decalogue, uh, as we call it. The Decalogue, of course, is the Ten Commandments. And this is one of the principal places where God initially addresses this issue. And so, for instance, um, he, he says this uh, in reference, uh, you shall worship the Lord thy God and serve him only. For I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And I read it from uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20 rather than Deuteronomy 5 because you have a more complete explanation uh, of those who hate me. And so what you see in Scripture is that it's not automatic, as you said, each one is responsible for his own sin. But there is certainly, if there's a dad who's a thief, he may teach his child to be a thief. If there's a man who's a pathological liar, he will probably teach his children to be pathological liars. If uh, there's a man who worships idols, he may teach his children to worship idols and they will teach their children and they'll teach their children. God is reminding us of the seriousness of sin and how it can produce an unbroken chain into the next generation. And sometimes these are sins that God's people commit. So Abraham lies on a couple of occasions concerning his wife. And what does his son do? He lies. And what does his grandson do? He lies. And so it's not by accident that you see this replicated in Isaac and you see it later replicated in Jacob. And again, God can intervene and he can change anything. And we must always remember, and this is especially true as new covenant believers, because we don't have a heart of stone. We have a heart of flesh that Uh, Nonetheless, we can become whom God has created us to be. And even in reference to unbelievers, no one can say, well, you know, my dad was a pimp and my mom was a prostitute. And that just means I'm going to be immoral. And I didn't have any chance or hope of changing. No, 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 no. God reminds us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so God can intervene in the hearts of idolatrous people and bring them to himself. Uh, So when I was in India last year, I saw a number of people who were idolaters, but I also met a number of people who were former idolaters. And though they had been raised in that kind of a home where, you know, we we think of idolatry uh, sometimes just uh, in terms of, well, you know, greed or physical sexual lust. And those are forms of idolatry. 
but we must never forget that a high percentage of the world still sits down and they worship an object and they call it God. And you see that in a place like India, of course, where there's 1.3 billion people. It's everywhere. Uh, there's temples to pagans, pagan gods on every street corner, just as we have you know, churches, so to speak, on every street corner in America. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But it's a reminder to us as dads, and especially in reference to the sin of idolatry. And it is interesting that idolatry is defined in places like Romans 1, where people exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship the created thing rather than the creator. But it is also broadened in the Bible to have other expressions, like in the book of Colossians, where Paul says greed and sexual immorality are are idolatry. And so especially with the sin of idolatry, but especially with those who choose not to love God, but it's a warning to us as believers because God gave the warning to his people that if we want to produce a godly heritage, it begins with us. Uh, There's a sense in which um, much of what our children uh, end up becoming is as much caught as it is taught. So you can't just say, you know, do as I say. You also want to say, do as I do. And we want to lead by example and by model that we would instill a passionate love for the Lord Jesus. And so I I say all this to say that there's a lot of people, even some Christians sometimes, who get caught up, say, in sexual immorality. And they wonder why their kids uh, follow the same thing. And why they find their teenagers who are engaged in sexual immorality? Well, the dad was out of tune. He was out of touch. And as the protector of his home, he didn't even see evil walking in the front door. And he thought that what he was doing was secret. And somehow he could, you know, have this little affair in his own heart and not have it influence his children. But it doesn't work that way. So these truths, when Jesus quotes the Shema which of course is uh, in response to a question that he has asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And the Shema, of course, is the first word in Deuteronomy 6, 4. It's the word hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus said, that's the greatest of all the commandments. And then, though, for that to be a reality, Moses records by the inspiration of the Spirit, and these words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. And then you'll be able to teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So the truth first needs to be seen in our life, and then we're in a position to really effectively teach But what a lot of Christians do is they try to teach without reality. And kids will spot that as hypocrisy. And sometimes they may not see your hypocrisy, but neither will you be discerning because you've lost your ability to discern because you're not walking in the fullness of the spirit and things are coming into your kid's life and you're just totally missing them. So this is a really important question that this caller has asked. Let's go to the next one. All right. We do have that question now from that deployed Marine. He writes, recently I attended a service at the base chapel here where I am deployed. The message surrounded the story of the Good Samaritan. However, the crux of the message was really about how the chaplain thought we needed to do a better job as Christians showing love to the lesbian, gay, bi, 
sexual and transgender community. And the chaplain went on to tell the story about he, in a prior deployment, would attend picnics and other functions as a chaplain with the LGBT community at the prior deployment location. While I cannot argue with the point that we are supposed to love one another, I have a problem as a Christian with a chaplain attending said event and validating it with his presence. And I have a problem with a chaplain doing a bait-and-switch as to what a service is about. But I digress. I guess I'm asking for you to articulate how do we indeed love all people but still not participate in the moral relativism that's occurring around us. A side note to this issue, my opinion is that all the chaplain corps is becoming so plain vanilla and politically correct that I'm not sure how much value comes from their ministry. Not a surprise, as the military is even becoming almost hostile to a man being overtly Christian or to being open about the ones being a born-again Christian. It's a real challenge for our military, uh, especially in light of some of the new policies that have come down the pike. And even last week, uh, a new policy from the Secretary of Defense in reference to how military officers are to uh, deal with transgender people. And I know this is a frustration. Uh, we have a number of Marine officers in our own church, and it's a real frustration for many of them uh, in terms of what's happening in the Marine Corps and just in the armed services in general. Now, let me just say a word of defense to the chaplaincy. There's a lot of really good chaplains out there as well that really love and passionately follow the Lord and want to do what's right and honoring to him. Um, and many of them are having a really significant impact in the armed services and are introducing people to Christ and are having just a phenomenal ministry. Uh, but this is a, this is a new thing that's come down the pike and especially, you know, with the whole LGBT issues, certainly God calls us to love people and he calls us to love people unconditionally uh, that's not the, um, um, you know, primary focus of the parable of the Good Samaritan. But certainly you see a Samaritan man who was really considered a half-breed and hated by both Gentiles and Jews. And he shows compassion uh, on an individual that you wouldn't expect someone to show compassion on. And so he was different from the, you know, religious leaders in Israel in his day. And he was a very compassionate person. And we should be compassionate towards the LGBT community. Um, you know, they, they're lost people. And not all of them are beyond reach. And so you, you need to remember that. When Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what unbelievers uh, can do and how they can live. Um, he tells us specifically in, he prefaces this list, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And whenever God in the Bible says, don't be deceived, the reason he says that is because he knows there's an opportunity to be deceived. And that's the nature of deception. People who are deceived don't know they're deceived. Uh, if they thought they were being deceived, they wouldn't be ripped off by some con man. That's the nature of deception. And Christians can be deceived and we can write people off almost as unsavable. Um, or we can somehow in our so-called compassion think that God's going to excuse their lifestyle. 
And so Paul warns, he says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then the next phrase says, in such were some of you, but God saved you. So God can save anyone. And there are, there are people who are in this lifestyle who are very unhappy people and they're looking for meaning in life. And they are looking for a, for, for love in all the wrong places. And we need to be compassionate. We don't compromise one bit. And certainly we are sending a compromising message when we engage the LGBT community in a way that violates a biblical principle. So for instance, some caller recently asked me, do I think I should go to an LGBT wedding? No, of course not. Because your attendance there is basically endorsing that is something that's okay. And you don't want to condone condone that kind of behavior because God has clearly defined marriage between a man and a woman. And it's not even a marriage. It's just just another form of sexual immorality. They can call it a marriage. Our president can call it a marriage. Our Supreme Court can call it a marriage. But it's not a marriage. It's just another form of sexual perversion. And if we don't hold God's standard in a clear way, not in a hateful way, you know, like Westfield Baptist Church, they hold the standard of God in a hateful way. And that's really sad. So we can, in love, hold the standard. If they get mad at us, they get mad at us. If they persecute us, they persecute us. And so um, there is this fine line we need to walk. We don't compromise one inch. And this is a challenge for some of our military chaplain. And, and this is why I think, among other things, we ought to be praying for a new president who would be a new commander in chief because they don't fall under the same rules. The military can make rules of their own independent of what the civilian community does. So if a new commander in chief comes in and he says, I don't want transgender people serving in the military, he can do that. If, uh, if, he, if he says, I want chaplains, if they and their religious conviction to be able to say that transgender people uh, who live this lifestyle are living in sin, and for them not to be disciplined or court-martialed by the military, a new commander-in-chief could say that. And so this is why it's really important, because we've got some people who are waffling on the issue, who say, well, you know... Um, you know, I'm, I'm personally against homosexual marriage, but, you know, and there's always these buts. And so this is why it's important that we have a person of moral character and where are they going to come down on some of these issues? And it's important too, to have a person of moral character is the commander in chief of the United States, because they have to have enough moral wisdom to know when do we call people into harm's way in, in danger potentially the lives of men and women that are defending our country and the cause of freedom around the world. And so this is very, very, very important, especially in light of some of these freedoms that are really being challenged and a number of freedoms that some chaplains may end up, you know, leaving the military over or being thrown out of the military over. And so we need to pray for, for these people who serve in these capacities. But I, I appreciate it. And uh, the question this deployed brother is asked, and we give their questions priority to be able to help them and respond to them. 
All right, very good. Um, we did have a question left over from last week, and it was referring to your message about the uh, coming uh, economic situation. Um, they write, unless I misunderstood, I think you stated that you were not sure if the church would go through the time of the crash. Uh, if there is a possibility that the church will go through the crash, what preparation would you recommend or advise Christians to do in way of preparation? Well, it's a great question, and what I meant by that is um, I, I do believe our nation, unless there is a radical turnaround, is heading for a financial disaster. And, of course, I was preaching on Malachi chapter 3, and I know the question that someone might ask is, well, what, what does this have to do with tithing everything? Because, really, the people who have learned to live by faith before the huge financial crash are the people who will live by faith after the financial crash. And God calls us to to live by faith. And two, God's people need to be prepared financially. Now, I said I don't know because I know there's going to be, you know, just like we talk about the big one, you know, out there on the West Coast that's going to come on California in terms of an earthquake. That's child's play compared to the one that's listed in the book of Revelation. Uh, That's the big, big, big one. Uh, that is going to have a worldwide effect. And we do know from the book of Revelation, and and we're getting ready to start a new series on Daniel followed by Revelation. And and many people read Revelation and they get kind of frustrated because they don't seem to be able to put it together. And part of the reason is because they don't understand the book of Daniel. And Daniel is the prophetic key to Revelation. And so we're going to begin here at Community Bible Church, a verse-by-verse exposition of Daniel. We'll go through every verse in the Bible They're written by the prophet Daniel, and then we'll go into the Revelation, and the book of Revelation will come alive for you. It will be very exciting. But we do know from what John gives in the Revelation of Jesus Christ to John that there's going to be a one-world economy, and no one will be able to buy or sell anything. So what would potentially bring all the economies of the world together? A worldwide economic crash. And what we're seeing uh, in terms of the United States faulty economy is replicating itself around the world. And some of the um, financial maneuvers that we have uh, used are being imitated in other places like China and Western Europe and so forth. And they're disastrous. You, you can't print money in, that has not been earned. You can't spend money you don't have and not eventually pay the consequences. We talk about our children and our grandchildren suffering. Forget our children and our grandchildren. You're going to suffer. If you're within the sound of my voice, we're going to suffer. And we're heading for a disaster every year since 1998. The Governmental Accounting Agency, which is a nonpartisan group that gives a report to the U.S. government every year, said that we are heading towards a course that is unsustainable. And, of course, they used to say we would hit that in 2035 and then 2030. And and now, depending on, uh, I think the official number is 2024, but there are people within that agency who are saying, no, it's going to happen before then. Uh, They're saying officially in 2024 that if we continue on the course that we are on, 100% of every tax dollar that comes in, all of the uh, several trillion dollars that we collect, it's three point something trillion a year, will go towards paying Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the money that we've borrowed, and there'll be zero money left. 
for the military and everything else our government is supposed to do. So we're approaching an unsustainable course. And no one wants to really face it. I know when George Bush was, uh, George W. was the president, he traveled, if I remember, to 40-some states trying to convince on a state-by-state bully kind of pulpit uh, that we need to address the problem of Social Security. Uh, why? Well, because, you know, we, we have, you know, over, you know, we, we have we have a hundred trillion dollars. You know, we, we talk about, you know, approximately 19 trillion dollars in debt. We have a hundred trillion dollars of debt that we will not be able to give an account for. Uh, we have a Social Security lockbox with nothing in it. So when you have money taken out of your Social Security check, uh, where does it go? It goes to pay current deeds. It's not like it goes in the bank and when you retire, oh, here's your money and we've been saving it for you and we're going to divvy it out. It's not there. Not to mention we have an aging population. It's almost like a Ponzi scheme and that we used to have, you know, four workers for every retired person and now we're down to two to one. It's getting ready to turn to one to one. You can't sustain that. And so something's going to break, and it's going to take some bold leadership of some, some person who's going to say, let's deal in reality, and let's uh, address this issue now before we go bankrupt. But there's going to be a crash on the courts we are in. It's just impossible not to. It's a law of God. You cannot spend money you've not earned. And if you are spending money today that you've not earned, then you're going to have to work for it. Or someone's going to have to give you money to pay for the debt that you've taken on for money you haven't earned. When, you, when you're tracking up credit card debt by the thousands of dollars, you are spending money you haven't yet earned. And you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to work for that eventually, unless someone gives you money to pay for that debt. In a government that does this, uh, they're gonna, someone's going to have to work for it. How, how, how is it going to be worked for? Well, instead of taking you know, 30% of your money, they're going to take 60% in taxes. Or they're going to print more money and continue to do that where our money becomes like the money in Zimbabwe, meaningless, worthless. You could uh, put $100 bills on the wallpaper in your room and it would be cheaper to use $100 bills than to go to Walmart and buy a roll of wallpaper. That's where we're headed. Um, So what do we do as Christians? Well, I think we need to get our own financial house in order. And I suggest to people to go through the theology of money. And, you know, I'm glad for guys like Dave Ramsey who have a radio show, and but he doesn't really give the biblical basis for it. And so many times people who uh, follow his advice, which is actually based on the Bible, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is, um, they end up, uh, you know, getting some things in order. But for many people who have been down those courses, it doesn't last. Why? Because their mind hasn't been renewed. And if you don't have a renewed mind, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, then your life is not going to change in a long-term kind of way. And that's what needs to happen. And so, and it's not just an issue of giving, you know, 10% of your money to the Lord. It's finding out what God says about your being a steward and what are the implications of stewardship. It's not like you're going to give an account someday for 90% of your money and, um, I mean, for 10% of your money, the 90%, you can do whatever you want with. No, you're going to give a, an account as I will for all of it. So God calls us to be stewards and we need to understand the issues and the balances of that. We need to know what God says about saving. See, a lot of Christians don't save anything. 
And so when the transmission breaks on the car this week and you discover it's going to cost $2,100 to fix, all you can do is go to the credit card. So God says, you know, learn a lesson from the ant. In time of plenty, she saves. Why? So that in, in the time of the winter, she's got something. And that's a biblical principle. So we go through what the Bible says about saving. We go through what the Bible says about debt, about what the Bible says about giving. The tithing is actually applicable for today. It's not some Old Testament practice that has no application for today. And it's just something Jewish people did under the Old Covenant. That, if you've heard that teaching, I'm sorry you've been taught that because that's just wrong. And there are people who try to convince you, well, the tithe wasn't 10%, but 13% or 23%. I go through all those passages on this course on the theology of money. Then we look at what the Bible says about investing and, and then planning. So it's a six-part course. It's not for the weak and weary. It takes you about eight hours to go through it. But if you will go through it, you will be on a course towards fixing your financial house. It's available online at searchthescriptures.org. You can uh, download the audio into your app or you can watch it on DVD. I encourage couples to watch it together on the DVD to order the notebook that goes with it. I don't make any money on it, but order the notebook and watch it together because you want to be on the same page. You don't want the husband on one page and the wife on another. You want to be on the same page so that together as a family, I won't marry anyone unless they go through the course. That's how important it is to me because I realize a lot of couples have problems in their first few years of life because they don't know what the Bible says about finances. And the reason they don't know is because their parents didn't teach them. And so as dads, we need to know what God says and we need to be teaching our kids how to earn a dollar, spend a dollar, save a dollar, tie the daughter dollar, not when they're 17 and they're getting ready to leave your home, but when they're four. And uh, that's when it needs to start. So what do you do right now? I'd say one, understand what God says biblically. Uh, You know, the uh, associate prime minister, that's not his official title. I forgot what they call him there in England, but the number two guy over finance, you know, when the stock market was crashing last week, uh, he was, um, you know, he was telling his people, you need to have 30 days worth of food and, uh, you need to have some money out of the bank and this and that. And and it really wasn't all that bad advice. Um, you know, there was a there was a country in uh, Western Europe that has just recently gone bankrupt. And they uh, took basically your uh, money that was in your bank account. So if you had one hundred thousand dollars in the bank, they said, now you have fifty thousand. They cut your money in half. This is how they're dealing with the debt. And then the other 50000 they bought you bank stock. <laughs> Maybe it will be worth something someday, but they know right off it's not. But that's how they handled it. Those are the kinds of radical decisions that you make when an economy implodes, like Greek, like Greece and other countries. And there will be a domino effect. Now, that may happen before the rapture and everything will be in line for the Antichrist to step in. It may happen during the tribulation. And the reason no one knows is because prophetically speaking, nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. Uh, He could come before this radio broadcast is over for his church. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. The Bible refers to the really what we call the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But there's all kinds of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming to take place. 
And the amazing thing is we're seeing that prophecy fulfilled in our lifetime. God has already fulfilled a number of prophecies that is setting the stage, which reminds you that the rapture that precedes the second coming is all that much closer. And so we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And um, so that's what I would encourage you to do. Let's go to the next question. All right. We had one question we only were able to touch on lightly at the end of the program last week. So we were going to revisit it. Uh, Jacqueline from Beaufort writes, what is an Orthodox Christian? Well, um, I know that came in right at the tail end of uh, the Bible line last time. And there's really kind of a double definition, a double nuance to the word. Uh, If you mean an Orthodox Christian in terms of the Eastern Orthodox Church, then that's one definition. If you mean an Orthodox Christian in terms of uh, the uh, integrity of what someone believes, that's another issue. So let me try to just address both because you don't specify. Um, The Eastern Orthodox Church is made up of 13 self-governing bodies that are united into one church. So it's not really a single church, but it's a It's a group of churches. So there's the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and so forth. Um, They have a patriarch, uh, and he's out of Constantinople. It's a title they give him. It would be the closest thing maybe in Roman Catholicism to a pope, though he doesn't actually have any authority over the 13 branches in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, Unfortunately, for the most part, the Eastern Orthodox Church today does not have the gospel. Um, Their view of salvation would mimic really more the view that's taught in Roman Catholicism. So justification by faith is virtually absent not just in the history of the Orthodox Church, but certainly in the current day Orthodox Church. So they speak of a process called divinization, which is what we would call sanctification. But divinization is that process where you become more and more like Christ by the things you do. Where in biblical theology, justification happens in an instant. In an instant of time, you are declared righteous and holy in the sight of God, not on things you do, but on what Jesus Christ has done. So we call this salvation by grace alone through faith alone. However, sanctification is a process after you're born again that is lifelong and is completed at glorification when Jesus completes our salvation and takes us to to heaven. Um, With all that said, in the Ethan, Ethan Eastern Orthodox Church tradition plays the same role as scripture. So this is the issue in Catholicism. Uh, Is the tradition of the church speak with equal authority as the Bible? And Luther and Calvin and the Protestant reformers said no. And so they underscored the the solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola gloria Deus, to the glory of God alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, uh, faith alone. And so the the solas that we actually have uh, imprinted on a stained glass window in our church and on the front of my pulpit, it says sola scriptura. What are we saying? We're saying ultimately the Bible is our final authority and it usurps the traditions of the church. So if the church in their tradition has come up with a belief and it doesn't coincide with the Bible, then we throw it away. We go with what the Bible says. 
So like Catholics, um, because of tradition, the Orthodox Church teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary, prayer for the dead. You know, they baptize infants to wash away original sin. Um, they talk about the possibility of being saved after you die. They talk about losing your salvation, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of really bad doctrine. That's not to say that everyone in the Orthodox Church is lost, because there's not. There's born-again Orthodox priests. I would say they are hard to find, just as it's hard to find a born-again Roman Catholic priest. Because most Catholic priests and nuns who get saved end up leaving the church because they start reading their Bible um, unlike Luther and Calvin, who wanted to reform the church. They, they didn't want to leave. They wanted to reform it and bring it in line. They got excommunicated. And that's usually what happens to these people as well. They don't really have a voice to be able to, to change it. Um, but, for instance, I go to the Ukraine, and there's this one Baptist church, which is the largest Baptist church in the whole country, and I preach in that. And occasionally on Sunday morning, I look out, and I see this Orthodox priest there, and he's in his garb and, you know, he's got his hat and this big cross around his neck and the robe that he wears and all that. And he's actually a born again guy and he will come on occasion. And I don't know who's pastoring his church on that Sunday morning, but he'll come and he'll sit in the service and he's met Christ as his personal savior. And he's trying to preach the gospel. But I'll go into a lot of towns and villages in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and, you know, they'll run out the born agains. So, for instance, uh, we did a uh, Bible club uh, vacation Bible school in an Orthodox village. We had about 175 kids come and the Orthodox priest, who is also the uh, village drunk, went door to door and said, the Americans are here to poison your kids. And the next day we had 20 kids. And that was sad. Although the next day about 75 came back and by the end of the week they were all there because we were bringing bananas. And uh, that's how we were poisoning them. Of course, at that point in Ukraine's history, most of them had never had a banana in their life. And to actually get a free banana was pretty exciting for those kids. And we would share the gospel. In one town, uh, so many kids came to Christ. None of the parents did, but so many kids came to Christ. The church on Sunday morning is all teenagers and, and young, young people. Uh, and there's a deacon who travels there to to help them. What we tried to do in a, no, a number of these villages is we don't just go for one swoop. We come back the next year and the next year. And after a while, because at the end of the week, we invite their parents to hear their kids sing a song in English or to see the crafts they've made. And we share the plan of salvation with the parents. And then the parents start coming to know the Lord. And before long, you've planted a, a New Testament church. And then we'll, we'll buy a building, a, a home in that community. And we transform it into a meeting house for the people to meet. A deacon will travel there. Eventually, uh, we will uh, assign a pastor there. We won't, but we work with the Ukrainians. And so what we began to see was that um, uh, the, the growth was outstripping the leadership. And so we helped them start a Bible college. And I usually teach there every year. And uh, we've already graduated a number of classes. And these are young men who are preparing to be, to be pastors. So that's one side of the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. I remember in one town, uh, there were two born-again women, and they held a Bible study in their home. And so under the authority of the Orthodox priest, he had the people in his Orthodox church go and break every window in their home. Uh, so that's the kind of people sometimes we're dealing with, just lost people, lost people in ministry. A lot of these guys remind me of the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Uh, the other definition of orthodoxy is... Um, 
describes someone who, who believes like the solas of the, of the faith. Uh, they believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, which by the way, the Eastern Orthodox church does as well. And that's what makes it so slippery sometimes is you mix truth with error. And many times that's how the devil comes. He comes as an angel of light. He, he doesn't come with cloven hoofs and a, a pitchfork. He looks Christian, but he's not. Um, but a true Orthodox Christian would affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, the uh, deity of Christ, salvation, not by works, but by grace, that good works are simply the evidence and proof of conversion, that Jesus was literally born of a virgin that he didn't spiritually rise from the dead, but literally physically came out of the grave, that he's literally physically coming again to judge um, the peoples of this world. Then you'll hear the word neo-Orthodox, which people like uh, Karl Barth and Emil Bruner, the Swiss theologians in the early part of the last century, uh, they kind of redefined orthodoxy and it was largely based on their view of scripture. So when you hear some pastor quoting Karl Barth, especially they quote him more than Emil Bruner, a red flag ought to go up in your mind because he kind of redefined what scripture was. And so a neo-orthodoxy, the new orthodoxy, the Bible is not the word of God. It becomes the word of God. That's an entirely different view. And so um, the Bible is not the revelation of God it becomes the revelation of God through your experience. So you're reading the text of scripture and it jumps off the page to you. And that speaks to your heart, so to speak. And you say, well, that's God's word to you. Well, what if the text you're reading, you don't like what it says? So this is what is neo-orthodoxy is what's coming to our main lines. So they'll talk about, you know, your Methodists and your PCUSA Presbyterians and certain Lutheran groups and so forth. And they'll say, oh, you know, the Bible's the word of God, but they mean something entirely different by it, that it becomes the word of God. So when they read a passage about women not being pastors, oh, no, 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 no. You know, that, that's not God's word to me. Or that homosexuality is an abomination to God. No, that's not God's word to me. So now it's very existential the way you interpret the Bible. And everything's relative, and there's really no absolutes. So this is a great question you've asked. It's opened a lot of questions, but let's go to the next one and see if we can get through a few more. And the number again, Rick? Is 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Vaughn from Savannah says, is investing in the stock market considered gambling? Are you taking a chance on making money when you invest? When you are in a stock market, sometimes you make money, sometimes you lose money. Is that not a form of gambling? Um, I think this is a follow-up question maybe from our last time together uh, because people ask, well, you know, is gambling wrong? And if you want to go back to the last Bible line and click on that question, uh, Rick, every week, posts the Bible line. He lists the questions. You can say, oh, that was the sixth question of the day. You can kind of scan down through the bar and find the answer. But we saw that, you know, biblically, there's only a certain way in which you are to receive money. One, for instance, inheritance, the primary way is hard work. Uh, but the idea of the get-quick-rich scheme is really a violation of Scripture. And, and, and gambling's just built on a spirit of thievery. It's built on a false premise of sorts. Uh, why is that? Because in a legitimate 
um, practice, there's kind of a win-win situation. I sell you a widget for a dollar, and you get a widget in return. Uh, where in gambling, no one can really win. Everybody is a loser. And, and so sometimes the question comes through the stock market, you know, is, is that gambling? Well, it might be. might be if you're foolish and you're, you're driven by a spirit of greed and you don't do your research and you put your money in a stock that they say, well, if they make money, you know, you're going to make big. But you also typically where you make big money, you lose big money as well. But invest, investing in the stock market or mutual funds, which is very often, and I cover this in the course on finances, the biblical theology of money, we look at the principles of investment and what should govern our investment principles. And of course, God talks about scattering your your your, your bread to many waters and and you don't put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And so when you go through mutual funds, you're trying to balance out maybe stocks that are a little more high risk with stocks that are very, very low risk and come out with a a percentage. But uh, investing in the stock market is not necessarily gambling because, again, it's based principally on a win-win philosophy. You know, there's a party who takes your money and they invest it and they are offering you a legitimate return off of their investment. And so this is where wisdom comes in. You know, who are the people running that company? What are their views on debt? How do they think about managing your funds? Uh, is this a high rich, get rich, uh, quick scheme type of approach? If it is, you may really be gambling and have crossed the line. But, you know, there is certainly God allows for people to earn Uh, off of an investment. Jesus taught that even when he dealt with the parable of the talents. And talent, of course, in the Bible is not like your ability to sing or to fix a car. It's actually a monetary amount that God gives to you. And so he gave 10 talents to some and five to another and one to uh, a third. And if you remember the guy who had just one talent of silver, he um, he dug it in the uh, dug a hole and buried it in the ground. Jesus said, "Well, you could have at least put it in the bank, and 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 the master could have earned some interest from it." Of course, the whole point of the parable is that God's people are called to be stewards. They're called to manage the money that God has given them well. And there's a lot of us who aren't being entrusted with other spiritual fruit in our life for the simple reason the way we're handling our money. Uh, Jesus said, if you, if you can't manage worldly riches well, who's going to entrust true riches to you? God won't. So there is a correlation between the way you are handling the $100 in your wallet and other types of spiritual fruit that come in the life. And this is why this is such an important, important issue. But Jesus's point also was that, you know, it's not a sin to put your money in the bank. Someone emailed me recently and um I just responded because he was a, a young Christian and and I wrote him back. Um, a lot of these questions, you know, Rick gives us here in the Bible line, but occasionally I will write back. I just don't have the time to type an answer in to everyone who calls or or sends a question. And I can speak faster than I can write or type. And, you know, I only have so many hours in the day. And honestly, if I answered every question that someone shot at me, I I wouldn't be able to prepare a sermon. So we try to hit a lot of these on this venue. But this young person, he's a teller in the the bank. And 
and he was kind of wrestling with uh, Planned Parenthood would come in and he would, you know, process their daily deposit. And he wanted to know if, you know, he should be a bank teller. And I just reminded him, I said, look, there's no way you can totally separate, you know, clean money from dirty money. In fact, Jesus calls it all unrighteous mammon in Luke's gospel. So in one sense, it is all unrighteous mammon. However, if you're the president of a bank, you don't necessarily have to, depending on the way the bank is structured, give a loan to parenthood. And certainly if you have a choice in investing in a company where the money is cleaner, that's certainly a much better use of God's money. Uh, But you cannot totally separate everything that you do. When you go into a convenience store and you buy gasoline and you give money to that store owner and that same store owner is promoting alcohol and booze that are going to get people drunk and, and they're going to go out and commit crimes and kill innocent people by driving behind the wheel and induce someone into sexual immorality. You just can't separate it all out. So you have to deal with your life and you walk with God and God gives you wisdom as it relates to your life and the money that he's put in your care in your management, and you pray for wisdom and ask him to allow you to be a good shepherd of those funds. All right, very good. I think we've got time for one quick question. Um, Why do Christians observe the Sabbath on the first day of the week, Sunday, rather than the seventh, as commanded in the Ten Commandments? This person's been taught that it's because Jesus rose on a Sunday. Please give your understanding. Well, you've been taught right. Um, The Ten Commandments is certainly still binding, Uh, However, sometimes the application of a commandment does change. So, for instance, uh, we still obey the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And as it's given in the Deuteronomy account, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. Uh, What land? The land of Israel. Now, because God now has an international community made up of every tribe and tongue and nation in the end anyway, but the church is all over the planet, not just in the land of Israel. God now extends the promise, not just to the land of Israel, but uh, wherever you are on the planet, same commandment, different application. There's still one day in seven that God calls us to honor, and we're not to forsake our assembling together of the brethren. And ultimately, we will actually, in the coming millennial kingdom, according to the book of Ezekiel, we will once again observe the Sabbath. You can read Ezekiel 36 and Isaiah 66. We'll go back to worship on the seventh day of the week. But right now, in honor of the Lord of the Sabbath and his resurrection, and that he has initiated a new covenant and that the old covenant has now been bypassed, we honor under his instruction on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 might be a couple of verses that you would want to look at. Anyway, that's the music, which tells me we're out of time for today, but we're glad you were able to join us, and I hope that you're walking with Christ. If you're living locally in a 50-mile radius of Beaufort and you don't have a place to go, we'd love to invite you to either our Bluffton campus that meets there on the border of Hilton Head and Bluffton, every Sunday.